So last week, uh, I gave a challenge to fathers. I've given you challenges as parents. I've given you challenges as couples, as spouses. I've given us couple uh, challenges as a whole. So regardless of who you are, what age you are, every single one of us has got a challenge at some point. Uh, And so I just want to ask a couple of questions. One, um, ladies... If you have taken advantage of the coupon book we gave you in week one, I want you to raise your hand. At least turn in one coupon so far. Raise your hand. Okay. Okay. So there's a lot of ladies in here. uh, I'm sure in Edgewood as well that you haven't turned in coupons. Remember that for every coupon you turn in to your spouse, it also goes as a voucher to win a vacation at the end of the year for your entire family. And so ladies, you need to put your husbands to work. Got me? They need to learn to serve and to love. And all you men are in here like, well, I'm just waiting on my coupon book, right? You're not getting one, okay? So use your wives. Um, Last week, though, we gave another challenge, uh, one that I believe has a far more lasting impact than even the coupon book that we gave, and that's the 752 challenge. We encouraged you to pray with your kids. If you have kids at home, we encourage you to pray with them seven times last week. Every day of the week, every evening, we encourage you to pray with them. Uh, we encourage you to have five meals together in the, in the week uh, during the evening, and we encourage you to pray with your spouse two times. And so uh, I, I'm going to put some of you guys on the spot, okay? And the reason why is because I want to make sure that we're holding each other accountable. We accomplished the 752 challenge in the Bactil residence, and I'm super pumped about it. Uh, and so let me ask you a question. If you took up the challenge and you were able to accomplish that this week, men, raise your hand, okay? The 752 challenge. And anybody in Edgewood can help me out, maybe awesome, okay? Uh, And so here's the deal. The question is, and I'm going to ask this really, why not? Why not? Because we talked last week about this, that one of the things that can foolproof your marriage is praying with your spouse every day, and we encourage you to pray with them two days. And so men in here, I'm going to continue to usher that challenge in, the 752 challenge. Make that a priority. Why? Because it has lasting impact in your homes. And so I encourage you to take advantage of that. Now, as we talk about this series, uh, it brings us to this sixth week, six out of seven weeks. Next week, we're going to close in a powerful way. I'm looking forward to next week uh, for a variety of reasons. One, I think it's going to challenge our church immensely um, to be a blessing to other families. But I think as we look at getting fit to fight, oftentimes we look at relationships in a way uh, that we want to be blessed. For instance, um, many of us in here are teaching and training our kids right now to look for Mr. Right, right? Or Mrs. Right. And we have a laundry list. Like as a dad, I have a laundry list of things uh, that need to be accomplished before you even ask my daughter out on a date. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, And and there's this, I mean, there's lists. And then of course our kids and even us, we had our own list. And at the top for most of us men, uh, we go, well, she needs to be pretty, right? Um, 
Number two, she needs to be smarter than I am. Uh, number three, her family needs to be richer, wealthier than my family, right? Uh, and you have this list of things that have to kind of happen before you're going to ask her out. And then, of course, she's got this list of things, too. And one is like he's got to be handsome. Uh, number two, he's got to be able to have some sort of logical conversation, right? He's got to be able to talk. Uh, number three, he can't smell his socks when he takes his shoes off, right? Uh, and like, there's certain things. And like, of course, our list is far different than your list, but we're always looking for Mr. Right. We're looking for someone who is a perfect fit. Uh, and matter of fact, you may wonder why is it that less and less people are getting married? Why is it that in our society, the first time in American culture ever, there are more singles than there are married couples? Why is it that we are, uh, in a sense, not getting married as fast, waiting longer? And here's why. It's because we can't find the right person. Uh, Pew Research, they did a survey a couple of years ago, and this is what they found that were the top few things that people were looking for uh, among their spouses or their mates. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, a couple of them are pretty important, but I don't know that it would have been the way I voted. But 62% uh, of men and 70% of women said they need to make sure before they date, before they court, before they entertain uh, a relationship with the opposite sex, they need to have the same idea and similar views about raising children. And you go, oh, that's, that's smart, okay? Um, 46% of men, but the highest among women surveyed, 78% said, before I ever date or even entertain marriage, I need to make sure they can hold down a steady job, right? Now, what's crazy is, is that among millennials and, and even generation Xers now, that very few men are able to hold down steady jobs. And matter of fact, that's why so many women are like, uh-uh, no. I'm not going to raise a child and then on top of that, raise more children. But that's something that's happening. 31% uh, of men and 38% of women said that one of the top things should be their moral and religious ideals, that they should be on the same faith in terms of faith and all of those deals. 28% of each category, both men and women said that what? Their education experience should be similar, that they ought to be looking for the same goals and some of the same hopes and aspirations when it comes to education. And then the last one was uh, that made the top five was 7% of men and 10% of women said similar ethnic and racial backgrounds were a priority or important. And so what we see is this, ladies, you're interested in relationships only if the man can hold down a job and can raise kids like you would like to. Men, you're like, oh, I don't really care as long as she's pretty. And we can get on the same page about a couple of things like religion and yeah, kids is great. But for many of us in here, I think we've been asking the wrong question. I think we've been asking the wrong question about who is Mr. Right? Who is Miss Right? What should I be looking for in someone else? 
And actually, we've always in our society taken the focus off of us and placed it on someone else. And if, if we like what we see in them, then we're interested. But oftentimes, we, we try to do everything we can to take the attention off of us and where we actually are. And so the question that I have for you, and, and it's applicable to every single person in here, teenagers, singles, married for five years or married for 50 years. What does it look like? And instead of asking who you want your spouse to be or ultimately to become, who you're looking for or what you're looking for in a future spouse or someone to date, what if you ask the question, what if I became the right person? What if I became the person that God wants me to be and that became the focal point of your relationship? Whether you're married, whether you're thinking about getting married, or whether you're even right now compiling the list of things that you're wanting in someone else. What if you did a culture shift and instead of making a list and desiring what you wanted to see in everyone else, you were to say, God, search me, know me, change me, that I'm the man, I'm the father, that I'm the husband, that I'm the coworker that I should be, that I'm the wife, that I'm the mother, that I'm the friend that I should be. Because we've been asking the wrong questions for far too long. And so the question is this, would you like a successful marriage? Yes. Would you like a successful working relationships with those that you rub shoulders with every day? Yes. Would you like to see your daughter grow up one day and marry a man and be happy and not go through some of the challenges that you've gone through? Yes. Well, here's the deal. A successful family is formed out of a life of successful discipleship. A successful family is born out of a life of successful discipleship. Meaning, if you and I want to have a family that is incredible and off the charts, we want to be attractive to people outside of our sphere of influence. When they look at us and they see our marriage or they see the way that we train our children, the way that we teach them, the way that we discipline them, the way that we converse with them then it actually doesn't start with just the family unit. It actually begins with who? Me. Me. Dads, can I pose something to you? And this will be the last gut punch that I throw at you today, okay? Maybe, maybe. If you did not tackle the 752 challenge, the question is, why not? And naturally, here's what we do. We take the focus off of us and we put it on everyone else. Well, we were so busy. We just didn't have time. My wife had a dinner engagement. My kids had soccer. And do you see what we're doing? We take those plates that we had last week and we do something different with them. We spin them so much that we say, look at the plates. Look at the plates. And if we can keep people looking at the plates, they never have to look at who? Me. And that's what's incredible about the circus. If they can keep you looking at all the entertainment, then you never have to look at the clown. Well, guess what? 
we're not in the circus business. We're in the clown training business. It's not about moving from this camp to that camp, from this city to that city. The deal is, is to train up people in a way that they make a radical difference. And the question is, is how does that happen? How do we become the men, the women, the children that God wants us to be? I believe it's born and bred out of Philippians chapter two. And there's eight verses that I want you to read with me. And that's going to be the only focal point that we have today. And Paul is writing to this church in Philippi. And in chapter one, he basically says that we ought to live as Christ and that we ought to die to ourselves. And he gives this idea of taking on the, the picture of living and abiding in Jesus. And then he says, and this is how you do it. And the way that you and I become the fathers, the disciples, the mothers, the children that God wants us to be is by what? Living and looking like Jesus. And we go, of course, that's exactly what it is. But where does it begin? And Philippians 2 answers that question for us. And here's how. It happens by having the same mind as Christ. The same mind as Christ. If you and I want to have external values that look like Jesus, it begins with internal, intrinsic values that are birthed out of who we are and what we believe. And so in order to what show and imitate Jesus, to live for him, to make people see him in our lives, in our relationships, in our marriage, etc., we have to have the same mind as Christ. It's a mindset. Do you understand what I'm saying? Listen to me. The greatest boxers, the greatest athletes are not phenomenal simply because they have external talent. It's because they have a fierce desire to compete that goes beyond physical capabilities. The best football teams, the best soccer teams, the best volleyball teams are not merely made of talent. They have an incredible grit, determination, and mind. They are not easily knocked off course. They have this incredible angst about themselves. And so Paul writes about that. He says in verse one, so if there be any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation from the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He goes, if you love Jesus, if, if you love the fact that you get comfort from his love, that you have any participation in the spirit, and he's talking about the church. He's talking about all of us in here. He says, if, if you and I are encouraged in Christ, if we love each other, we give to each other as we have need. Look, when you hurt, I hurt. When I, when I have great joy, then you have great joy. He says, if you draw comfort from that, if you uh, have affection and sympathy, then he says, complete my joy by being like-minded. In a sense, he goes, have the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, that's what it looks like to become who God wants you to be. It's of a similar mindset. So all the things that you're displaying over here actually come as a result of what? Us being like-minded, us desiring 
to flesh it all out because Christ is our goal and our pursuit. And then he says, and this is what it looks like. And he gives us two things that are relationship killers, two relationship killers. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now look what he says. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. And he gives you the Greek word aretheia. Uh, aretheia literally means it's to gain something by an unfair means. Now, before you and I had the written New Testament, the word aretheia had only showed up really in one set of classical books, etc. And it had to do with Aristotle. And it actually had with Aristotle's point in life where he was actually searching and finding a means to gain political office. But do you know how he was going to go about political office? He was a non-believer and he was going to do it by unfair means. And Paul takes a word that's circulated in the culture, but not in the Bible very often. And he says, do nothing out of aretheia. Do nothing out of unfair advantage. Do nothing that's selfish or self-centered. Do nothing that undermines relationships. And so you go, okay, that makes sense. And then he says, or conceit. And the word conceit there is the word kenodoxia. And it literally means vain conceit or the best idea of it is simply this, empty conceit, a puffed up notion. And so it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, let me put it in a, a way that all of us can understand. Here's what selfish ambition is. One of the two relationship killers, one of them is selfish ambition. So here's selfish ambition. You know these people? Maybe, maybe. Always needing to get my way. Yes? Anybody in here, you're like, yeah, that's me. I always need to get my way. Yeah, yeah. It's either participation is not happening today, or you're like, I don't want to be very honest. I, you don't know anybody like this, then it means that it's probably you, okay? <laughs> Selfish ambition. I always need to get in my way. And you'll do it by a means of unfair advantage. Like you have no problem going below the belt. That's aretheia. I'm going to be right. I'm going to get my way. And vain conceit, empty, puffed up conceit. What is that? Well, here's vain conceit. It's always thinking I'm right when in fact I'm actually not. Understand? Now, let me explain this to you. You're like, wait a second. How do I think I'm right when I'm actually not? I don't know how you do it, but you do. Because the people that struggle with vain conceit, you're always right. Matter of fact, we ought to write your name on the presidential nominee election. You understand? Like, you're so smart. You're so intelligent. Like, no one thinks like you think. When there's a problem, yes, there's six ways to, to address the problem, but you know the right way, right? Yes? You know those people? Again, if you don't know one, it's probably you. These people have become so smart, so right, so intelligent that you're actually a legend in your own mind. And you go, well, why am I a legend in my own mind? Because those that struggle with vain conceit, you think you're right, but the problem is everyone else knows you're not. But you're the only one who can't see it. You're the only one who goes, I don't have a problem. And yet these are two major relationship killers. 
I sit down with couples, matter of fact, quite often. And I've sat down with couples from Wills Point. I've sat down with couples from Canton, from Edgewood, from all parts of our county. And one of the things that I see that comes up often are these two things. The idea of selfish ambition, that I need to be right. The idea of vain conceit, that I'm, I'm going to not only be right, but the idea also of what selfish ambition, that I'm going to do what? Get my way. And these things oftentimes butt heads with each other. And the reason why is because it produces unhealthy relationships. Matter of fact, you'll see it even played out in conversation. Let me remind you of, of what a conversation, someone that struggles with vacant seat looks like. They're talking and you're having dinner with some friends and, and the wife begins to tell a story. And she starts talking about um, this thing at work and, and it happened about a decade ago and, and she's like, yeah, it was about 2005 and yes, my boss came in and we were talking about this and he was about to offer me a promotion. And then all of a sudden the husband goes, no, 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 it was not 2005, it was 2007. You're like, no, 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 I think, and she goes, no, I think it was 2005. And he's like, no, 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 it was 2007. I remember it by the day. Matter of fact, it was two days after my birthday and I turned 35 in 2007. And then all of a sudden, like, you're like, oh, this is a little awkward. It's a little tense. And the whole point of the, the narrative is missed because of one person's need to be what? Right. And what's incredible is, is that in the conversation, whether it was 2005 or 2007, it does not matter in the grand scheme of things, but you see that idea of selfish ambition and vain conceit coming out. And it actually destroys relationships. Why? Because it doesn't just happen in marriages. It happens with fathers to their sons. Last week, we talked about not exasperating our children. And one of the easiest way for our, our uh, parenting strategy to exasperate our children is for us to always be right. For us to always think that I'm going to get my way. And don't get me wrong. There are some moms in here that you are not going to be wrong. I am right, and I'm going to make this stand. And the question is, is the stand that you're taking, number one, is it worth it? Number two, is it relevant? And number three, can the damage be undone? Because those relationship killers are hard to undo. Why? Because they don't take on the mind of Christ. And so you and I are called to live like Christ, but in order to live like Christ, in order to flesh that out, we have to what? Have the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is what produces in us something different than selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm going to poll the audience here, okay? This will be my last poll the audience, whether you're here in Wills Point or Edgewood. How many of you know someone or you yourself have struggled at some point with the two relationship killers, selfish ambition or vain conceit? So every single one of us just about in here, there's a couple of you are like, I'm not sure. Should I raise my hand? Should I not? I don't know. <laughs> no, I promise you, you struggled with them at some point, okay? Uh, matter of fact, I gave all of us an out by saying, do you know someone else? <laughs> 
Because I've asked questions to you twice today directly related to you, and you're like, oh, no, I have no struggles here. Which is the reason we're actually going to take all the No Perfect People shirts off the shelves, because we know we don't struggle with that anymore, okay? We've all arrived. Our marriages are great. Our children are thriving. And if we were to go back there and ask them, hey, how's mom and dad doing in parenting? They would say, oh, they're the best parents we've ever could have dreamed for, right? No, I think we all struggle with this. But the question is, is this, if we do struggle with these selfish ambition, vain conceit, always needing to get my way and always needing to be right, how do we overcome it? I love the fact that when Paul addresses this, he doesn't leave us hanging, but he actually gives us an incredible example. The best example that we could hope for, and look what he says. He says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, better than yourself. There's the answer. If you want your marriage to thrive, consider your wife better than, your, than yourself. If you want your relationship with a business partner that you've been butting heads with lately, consider him better than yourself. If you want your children to love you and ultimately do as you, you ask, Consider them better than yourselves. See, the answer is so simple, yet so hard to do. Why? Because everything we flesh out actually comes from the same mind. And oftentimes our problem is that what's in us comes out of us, right? And what's coming out of us does not look like the same mind. And the reason why is because in our society, we never ask the question, how do I improve we always ask the question, what do they need to do to make our relationship better? We rarely put the focus on us and we usually take the spotlight and place it on someone else. We do it in marriage. We do it in dating relationships. We do it in business partnerships. And the problem is, is that we can solve the issues, the dilemmas by simply humbling ourselves in humility. That's it. In humility, consider others better than ourselves. And then look what he says in verse four. And let us not look only to the, the interest of ourselves, but also to the interest of others. Right? And yet we live in a society where we constantly look to our own interests. But he's saying, no, look to the interest of others. Why? Here's why. Verse five, and have this mind. Do you see the recurring theme? To live as Christ, chapter one, two, chapter two, have the same mind. So you're telling me that in order to fulfill chapter one, to live as Christ, I have to have the same mind? Yes. To live is Christ, to die is gain. It's only possible by having the same mind. And he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you know what the challenge is? The challenge is to become more like Jesus for the sake of fill in the blank. My challenge is, is to become more like Jesus for the sake of my wife. My challenge is to become more like Jesus for the sake of my children. 
My challenge is to become more like Jesus for the sake of my friendships. My challenge is to become more like Jesus for the sake of our church, for the sake of you. You need me to become more like Jesus. For our church to be all that God wants it to be, you need me to have the same mind as Christ. For your business to become all that God wants it to be, you need to have the same mind as Christ. See, I'm not giving you this text simply to puff you up and make you feel good and send you out on, the, out the, on your way for what? Spring break week. I'm telling you this because this is truly the answer for your marriage. This is truly the answer for your parenting strategies. You can have all the strategies that you want. But if you can't flesh it out by having the same mind, then you're missing it. And what does it look like to have the same mind as Christ? Well, Paul doesn't stop there. He gives you what the same mind as Christ really looks like. You ready? Verse six, who though he was in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now think about that. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself he took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now think about this. Totally divine, a part of God's triune plan, father, son, Holy spirit. Jesus became obedient in what way? He lowered himself first and foremost to the appearance of a man. He took on flesh. He lived among us, although he could have chosen a thousand other glorious ways to do it. But he said, no, I must become like them. And though he was totally God and he was divine, he never used his divinity to supersede God's plan. He never took the stone and turned it into bread. When they said, hey, throw yourself down, save yourself from this cross, he never did it. When he said, oh, call on the angels, he never called on a glorious set of angels to come and wipe out everyone. He literally humbled himself. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a Nazarene. What good, I believe Nathaniel said, could come from Nazareth? And so not only did he lower himself to the point of humanity, but he took on the most obscure parts of humanity, the lowest points. He was tempted. He suffered. He was accused. He literally went in weakness in hunger and in thirst to take on the cross, becoming completely obedient as a servant to die in your place. Matter of fact, in verse four, it says, let each of you not look to your own interest, but to the interest of others. And then you see how he did it. But the word look is the Greek word skopeo. And the idea is don't look, scope out the angle in which what benefits you. And how many times, husbands, do we look at the angle that benefits us? any partnership, how many times do we go, let me see how I can look at that. How do we turn it? How do we skew it so that we actually are a benefactor of what we're doing? Well, here's what Paul says. Jesus did not benefit at all. 
I mean, honestly, what was the benefit? Think about it like two men out in the middle of a war zone. And you have me and you have my buddy. My buddy is out in the middle of fire and he's taking it on and he's got his head down and he's buried in the middle. And I have me, I'm off in the ditch in the background and I know that I have one of two choices. One, I can maintain safety and I can stay right where I am. Or I can leave my safety, my security device in that trench and I can go and I can redeem and have redemption by saving my friend, right? Yes? But I can't have both. There's not an angle that you can play what Paul is saying, that you can have both. You can't both have redemption and safety. In order to have redemption, you have to leave safety. And in order to leave redemption on the table, you have to maintain your safety. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Jesus left safety so that you could have redemption and salvation. If Jesus considers equality with God something to be grasped, if he looks at the Father and says, no, I'm not giving it up. Send the Holy Spirit if you'd like, but I'm not doing it. Then you are damned in your sin and your separation. Yet because Jesus said, I am willing to go and live among a sinful people to take on their flesh, their form, to live in in their presence, to be tempted as they've been tempted, to hunger as they've hungered, to thirst as they've thirst. I'm willing to give up the, what? My plans, my hopes, my aspirations, my dreams, my need to be right for their sake. And as John says, he laid his life down for his friends. Paul says, that's what it looks like to become the right person. See, you and I, I think we start by becoming the right person with a handful of things, right? You think, oh, I need to go to church more. Um, I need to pray more. I need to read my Bible more. I need to cuss less. I need to, oh, I need to get rid of this. I, I, I drink way too much around my spouse. My kids, you know, they see my bad habits. And you and I naturally go to a bunch of external things that you and I think would improve our relationship. When in all actuality, you'll never ever live out anything until you have the same mind as Christ. And see, the answer is not, let me clean up our relationship by doing external things. See, the answer is not, well, you know what? It's just been real stressful and I think we just need a vacation. The answer is not, man, we're really distanced ourselves, but I think if we have a child, it'll fix it. The answer is not, you know what? She's really struggling with her grades. and I think we just need to bring down the hammer. No, the answer is, is, What have I done to contribute to the success of our marriage, to the success of our business, to the success of our parenting relationship? Or for that matter, what have you been doing to what? Hinder it. And you can boil it down to this. Your success or your failure in any relationship you have, single, 
married, maybe nearly divorced, has everything to do with our you of same mind. Because you give me a husband that looks like this, and you will not have a wife wanting to leave. You won't. Wives that want to leave their husbands are because their husband is always right. He's never wrong. He always gets his way. And when he doesn't, he pouts and throws a fit like a three-year-old. And why does he do all this? Because he's not of same mind. And so is external values the answer? No. It's an eternal and internal decision to be of same mind. I will not consider equality, as Jesus said, with God something to be grasped. But he became, what, obedient even of what, to death, death on the cross. You understand? What would it look like instead of asking the question, am I marrying the right person? What if you did this? And I'll put it up there for you on the screen. Instead of desiring for someone else to be or become the right person, I am committed to what? Being and becoming the right person. And that starts with me becoming more like Jesus. C.H. Spurgeon said, the lower he stooped to save us, the higher we ought to lift him up, meaning Jesus in reverence. Blessed be his name because he stooped and he stooped and he stooped. And when he reached our level, he stoops some more. He became man. And then he stoops and he stoops and he stoops more, even lower and deeper yet. See, Jesus didn't just stoop once when he became man. He kept stooping so that you could have redemption. Husbands, wives, fathers, children, what would it look like if in our lives we kept stooping until we got to the point where we said, wow, to live, live as Christ, to die as gain. And that happens by having the same mindset as Christ, having the same mind. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you for today. And Father, we pray that you would help us to have the same mind as Christ. Lord, we're so thankful that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Lord, we're thankful that he became a bondservant on our behalf, that he stooped and he stooped and he kept stooping so that we may have life and have it abundantly. And Lord, I know that there's a, a variety of people in here. There's some singles in here that they go, I, I don't need to stoop that low. I'm not looking for someone and I can be selfish because I'm still single. All I need to, to care for is my, my needs and my feelings. There's some of us in here that we're cold and indifferent towards other people because we think that we don't need to maintain healthy relationships. But Lord, we need to know that that's not the attitude and the mindset of Christ, that you are a servant and you're calling us to be the same. And I pray, Father, that our relationships would flourish because we choose to love and to serve like Jesus. Help us, God, to ask the question, who am I becoming? And is it like Jesus? We love you and we thank you for this challenge. In Jesus' name, amen.